time to Mill City Church, everybody. We're so glad to have you here. Why don't you find your chair? We'll continue worshiping together. I can't help but take one more minute to uh, celebrate the fact that there's a new sound system in the school. Uh, a few years ago, I came to a performance that the kids were putting on. This has been a number of different things, the school. At one point, it was an arts magnet school, and they were focused on arts. And the kids had worked really hard on a play, and they came out, and their parents were all here. And these, you know, fourth, fifth, sixth graders were trying to get their little lines out that they had memorized, and you couldn't hear them. And it was awful. Like they had worked and practiced and practiced and practiced and the sound was so bad that you really couldn't hear them above like their talking voices on the stage. And they use this auditorium for all kinds of things, movie nights, performances, you know, assemblies, and they just struggled to even get a microphone to come out here and talk to rambunctious kids. And you know what it's like, especially you teachers, like if you spend 15 minutes messing with the microphone, you're done, you're never getting them back, right? So here's what I love about being part of this church. Like we raised $30,000 and gave it to the school district. The school district found another 15 or $20,000 to put a couple of speakers in. And yes, we're benefiting on Sunday. It sounds good. You can take communion without a song blaring you in the face. It's fantastic. <laughs> but even more important than that, it's part of God blessing this school, right? And it's a partnership. It's not just us doing it for them. They're helping us. We're helping them. It's the way that God has always used Mill City Church in this neighborhood. And I'm so proud to be part of that. And I'm so glad that when these kids come up this year to give whatever performances they're going to give, everyone's going to hear them crystal clear. Isn't that amazing? I'm so pumped about that. So for many of you who made extra donations and made sacrifices to give, uh, for, for gifts that you gave to Mill City that were a surplus in a year that we saved and, and were able to give to the district, thank you. You made a big difference in the lives of these kids and our church. Let me pray for today's message. Jesus, we love you. We know that you are present with us whenever we're gathered together. We're grateful for the hospitality of this school. We continue to pray that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you are doing in this school. We again lift him up to you and pray for his healing today and show us as a church how we can be of a support to him and his family this week. We love that we get to be part of your work in this public school, and we pray that you continue to invite us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're in a year, 2020, where one of our goals as a church is to try to see our lived experience of life through the lens of Scripture. And if you haven't been with us in the last month, we stated that we know that 2020 might be a tense year for a number of reasons. And as a church, we want to do everything we can to see life through the lens of the Bible, to see life through the lens of the New Testament so that we can interpret what's happening to us and what's happening in the world the way that God wants us to interpret it. We want to be Christian people acting in the world in 2020. That's our identity. And we want to filter all the other messages and struggles and decisions that we have to make through that identity. And the practice that we're using to try to help us do that is to read the New Testament together over the course of 2020. So how many of you have at least tried to get on the reading plan and start reading the New Testament in 2020? 
Awesome. Okay, so here's the thing. The New Testament is short, right? So if you're behind and you haven't started yet, we just started the book of Mark, you can binge Matthew this week and be caught up in less time than it will take you to watch a Netflix show, okay? Uh, In my family, we've been listening to scripture on our drives places with the kids, and they're into it. I mean, they're little achiever kids because they're in our family. So they're like, we don't want to get behind. Put that thing on. Okay, so that's going well. Maybe while you're working out or when you're doing something else, grab the Bible app. Steph made this cool little video that shows you how to do it on your phone. Uh, That's under the participate tab on our website in New Testament 2020. Just get on board and catch up or skip the stuff that you haven't read yet and jump in where we are now. It's really going to help you this year to see your life through the lens of scripture and to hear what God's wanting to say to you. So today we're starting our conversation about the book of Mark. And if we're treating the book of Mark as a lens through which we see our lives in 2020, we should start by getting uh, just an overview of what the book of Mark kind of looks like. So we've mentioned to you many times that the Bible Project, bibleproject.org.com something, um, puts together these really great little videos that are also linked to our site that you can get in three, four, five minutes an awesome visual summary of any of the books of the Bible. So go and watch that this week on the book of Mark as you're reading it. Uh, There's three main things that are happening in the book of Mark. Who is Jesus is being discussed in the first eight chapters. The disciples are then struggling with his identity as a Messiah, as a Savior. They don't get that. They don't know what it means. They don't know why he keeps talking about dying and coming back to life. They don't like that plan, and so they're struggling with that. And then the end of the book, chapters 11 to 16, talk about Jesus actually becoming the Savior King by giving up his life uh, on the cross and coming back from death. And so we're going to take a look today and treat Mark as a lens through which we're going to see the rest of our, our life. In the very first verse of Mark, he sort of states his purpose for the whole book. He says, the beginning, uh, this is the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. So Mark's the shortest of all the Gospels. It's probably the earliest written Gospel. Uh, John Mark is the gentleman who wrote it. He likely wrote it from Rome. uh, So he had a very different context than if he had written it in a, a predominantly Jewish setting. And he's writing this to both Jews and people who aren't Jewish. This is the beginning of the good news about Jesus, who's the Messiah, who's the son of God. Those are the things that he wants to make sure he communicates. Now, the final verse of Mark is super interesting, right? If you're writing a book and you're thinking about the beginning and the end, listen to how the the last verse in the book of Mark sounds. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. This is after discovering that Jesus wasn't in the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Does that seem like a good conclusion to you? Does that seem like he really wrapped it up at the end? No, Mark actually has this really honest and authentic story about how hard it was to believe what Jesus was telling them about what the Messiah actually was. They wanted to change the world in so many other ways than what Jesus was proposing that even when the book ends in verse eight there, the women who discovered him not being in the tomb were scared and confused and unsure of what the future holds. 
which sounds a little bit like 2020 to me. People are scared, confused, unsure of what the future holds. For, for Mark, he's wanting to communicate that Jesus is a suffering, crucified, and risen Savior Messiah. That the world changes through the self-sacrifice of God in human form. That's what Mark's gospel is trying to help us see and believe. And so his disciples and the people around him are really struggling to accept this. They don't get it. They don't think it makes sense. They have other options and ideas for how the world could be different. Their question is the same, I think, as our question is, what do we do with the brokenness that we find in ourselves and in the world that we're living in? For them, that meant struggling with Roman oppression and um, all sorts of different political issues. For us, it can take a variety of different forms, but for many people that I talk to today, it's not a question that we're aware of the brokenness in our own lives and the brokenness in the world, right? So what does Mark's gospel tell us about what we can do or how we can engage with the brokenness in the world and in ourselves? As I listen to conversations that we're all having, whether that's interpersonally or online or on the news or whatever, there are so many different ideas about what we should do about the brokenness in ourselves and the brokenness in the world. Here's a short list of things I hear. One, we should educate people better so that they understand things more clearly. Two, we should change the systems we have so that they're more fair or more just. Three, we should sometimes use power over other people and make them do what we want them to do. Four, we should inspire people to want to change the way that they're living their lives so that we can live collectively in a different way. We should cast vision for people, number five, that the world could be like this if we all came together. We should start a grassroots movement to try to garner enough support to change things that we want to be changed. No, 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 forget that. We should just influence the powerful people and they will make laws and change things that will help all the rest of us live the way that we wanna live. No, we should just be the change that we wanna see in the world. Anybody heard that one before? And then that, if enough people do that, right, the world will change. Or we should call people out, mostly on social media, and shame them into doing things differently than they're doing now. Anybody hear any of those things? Right, and the list could go on and on and on, and, and we're having this conversation about how the world desperately needs to be different, and we've got all kinds of different ideas about how we might be able to go about doing that, but Mark has a very particular way in which he thinks the world is going to change. Mark's gospel is a lens through which we can look at the world and look at our lives and say that the way to deal with the brokenness is through faith in God's power, belief in God's action, unceasing prayer, and offering and receiving forgiveness. When you look at the world through Mark's gospel, you see that Mark wants to say that through faith in God's power, belief in God's action, unceasing prayer, and offering and receiving forgiveness, the world can be different. Let me tell you a little bit about each of those pieces. 
So believing in the power of God, Jesus has come from Galilee in the book of Mark, and the, re- the part I'm going to read for you now is where he's starting to enter Jerusalem. So he's done all these amazing miracles. There's so many healing stories in the book of Mark. Those of you who've been reading it, you've been noticing that, right? He heals all kinds of people of all kinds of things. He's fighting back evil as he finds it in the world. And, and he comes to the point where he declares who he is, and then he heads for Jerusalem to engage with the religious leaders in the temple in Jerusalem, which is the epicenter of the Jewish faith and the authority. And so he begins engaging with those religious leaders and he's entering Jerusalem and he has had conflicts with these religious leaders and he's about to have more conflicts with these religious leaders that ultimately end up in his death. So this is the first story in Mark of him entering into Jerusalem. I'm gonna read for you now. And it involves the death of a fig tree. Ready? Chapter 11, verse 12, Mark. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus and his disciples, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And that's exactly how he said it. I have an inside scoop. And his disciples heard him say it because he said it very loudly. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. Do you get the fact that Jesus is is angry today on this particular day? He overturned the tables of the, the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, which they used to offer sacrifices, and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise, which I think is probably t-shirts and other things, through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written that my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this, and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Jesus says, have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your father in heaven may forgive you your sins. All right, let's talk about this passage for a minute. First, let's get into this weird fig tree situation. Jesus goes to look for some fruit, and he's mad that there's no fruit, and so he curses this fig tree. And then he heads into town, and the next day, they find that the fig tree's dead. Jesus killed the fig tree. And in in the middle of that story, you have this righteous anger that Jesus expresses in the temple because they have changed, the leaders have changed the temple from being a place where people can pray and connect with God's presence to a place where folks are making money off of changing uh, foreign 
uh, transactions or money changing, and also selling doves at some exorbitant price so people can actually offer the sacrifices they need to offer. And they have turned faith in God into a religion business. And Jesus is very upset about that. Sometimes you think of Jesus as this amazing, kind person who's looking for people and trying to help them and heal them and teach them. And then every once in a while, he's just real mad at folks. And this is one of the stories where he's real mad, particularly at the people who are supposed to be responsible for creating environments where people can find God's presence. When Peter sees that the fig tree's dead, he seems amazed, which is kind of dumb, in my opinion, because of all the other things that he's seen Jesus do, like calm storms and bring people back from the dead. He really didn't think he could kill a tree. He says the fig tree is dead, and Jesus uses it as a teaching moment to say three particular things to him. First, he just says, real simply, have faith in God. Jesus is upset in this moment because the fig tree is a metaphor, right? It's not, he's not really that upset about the fruit. He's actually mad that there's no fruit coming from the temple in Jerusalem, that the people aren't being fed and the people aren't being encouraged to find relationship with God and the people aren't growing and the kingdom of God isn't coming out of those people's lives because they're being robbed instead of taught. That's what he's really upset about. And so he says to the disciples, have faith in God. Have faith in the power of God. More than your faith in the power of the government. More than your faith in the power of these religious leaders who aren't doing their job. More than whatever personal power you might think you have. Jesus wants them to trust in the power of God. That they will be able to do way more than they ever imagined in their desire to see the world be the way that God wants it to be if they trust in God's power. Eugene Peterson in the message puts this line in this uh, section of the scripture this way. He says, uh, embrace this God life. He translates have faith in God to embrace this God life. Really embrace it and nothing will be too much for you. It is so easy to trust in everything but God, isn't it? It is so easy to think that we can somehow find people, find resources, find strategies that will help us get to the results that we think we want to get to and just cut God right out of the conversation or pray as if God has something to do with it and then do whatever we want. Sometimes we forget to ask God about key decisions in our lives. Sometimes we're really just relying on our own strength and resources and not involving God at all. Sometimes we're trying to control our circumstances, aren't we? And make things be the way that we want them to be. Or maybe we're trying to get God to control our circumstances by petitioning him. We all struggle to really have faith in God as the primary actor in our lives and in the world. And we have to keep coming back to this simple message that Jesus presents to them. Have faith in God because God is the one who changes the world. To see the world in 2020 from a Christian perspective is to say, my first and foremost belief is that God will bring about the change that is needed in the world. And God will use people to do that, and God will change systems, and God will do all the other things that we hope that will happen, but God's the one who's going to do it. And that might sound foolish to lots of people in your life. 
But that's a Christian perspective. That's a Christian faith to say that we are lost. If God doesn't do it, we can't do it. That's the Christian wager. And so if we sound ridiculous in conversations when we say that we really think we need to pray and ask God to help us in particular areas of our life and our own brokenness and the brokenness in the world, then so be it. We're going to sound foolish. Jesus invites us to renew our faith in God as the one who can do something about the brokenness in the world and in our lives. So he says, have faith in God. And then he says, uh, pray, right? Ask God for things. He says, if you have faith and you say to this mountain, go into the sea, it'll be done. Now, does everybody in the room, we need to understand the word hyperbole. Does everybody know the word hyperbole? Hyperbole means that you exaggerate something to make a point. That's what this is right here. Jesus didn't teach them to move the mountains around. They weren't restructuring the geography of the Middle East. He was trying to say in the most exaggerated way possible, if you have faith in God, you can do anything. You can be part of the th- the God changing anything in the world. God can move mountains if we have faith. Believe and don't doubt, he says. Don't doubt in your heart, but believe that what you pray for will happen. Anybody have trouble when you hear that? I know I do. This is a really hard passage, in part because I know so many people who have prayed for things that didn't receive what they got. Anybody else? I want to be clear and say that I don't think Jesus is saying that we shouldn't doubt the way that we've talked about it or Steph's talked about it in in terms of asking good questions and being able to ask questions that we have about our faith. That's not what he's saying. He's actually saying, don't doubt that God can do it. Don't doubt that God can do what God decides to do. And even that is hard, right? And the people in in this book are struggling to believe that. What is it exactly that Jesus is inviting us to believe when he says, believe and don't doubt? Here's a few things I think he's saying. He's saying, believe that what we pray for will happen. That's pretty challenging, isn't it? Believe that God can heal people as Jesus has been healing people. Believe that God can restore relationships. Believe that God can restore the earth. Believe that God can conquer death. That was a particularly hard one for the disciples to accept. Believe that God can bring freedom to people who are not free. Believe that God can make wrong things right and establish justice in the world. Believe that God can save us. Believe that God can change the world, literally change the world. That's what Jesus is asking us to believe when we pray. And when you look at that list, doesn't it seem kind of ridiculous? Would you be a little nervous if you shared that with some non-Christian friends and said, oh, this is what I'm trying to believe? But what Jesus is trying to say is that if we have faith, if our faith is strengthened, then we can believe these kinds of things and we believe that God can do these things and has done them and will do them. That's treating Christian faith as a lens through which we can see 2020. God can do miraculous things in our lives and in the world. 
But you might be sitting there saying, but what about the unanswered prayers? What about the times that I have done this? I have prayed for this. I know people in the room, people I'm very close to, who feel like they have prayed and prayed and prayed and God has not offered. So when I read, ask for whatever you wish in prayer and believe that you have received it and it'll be yours, I have to call false. Because that's not been my experience. What about that? As I was thinking about this, I think there might be three ways that might be helpful to, to try to understand what Jesus is teaching here. Okay, so here's one option. When Jesus says, when we pray for things and believe that we have them, uh, we will receive them. Option number one is, maybe he's just wrong. Maybe that's just not true. Maybe what he says here is, is somehow false. That's one option, right? That's one explanation for why some things that you may have prayed for have not come true. A second option could be that uh, I don't believe enough. I have heard this from so many people. I didn't have enough faith, and so God didn't grant my request. I did have some doubt in my heart, and so God didn't grant my request. That's another possibility, right? Another explanation for why we don't always receive the things that we pray for. Or the third option, which is the one I like, okay? You always leave the best for last if you're making a list of things. The third one is the one I like. Something else is going on sometimes when you pray for something and you believe that God's gonna give it to you and it doesn't happen or it doesn't happen yet. Now that might sound like some kind of a cop-out, but it isn't. Because Jesus himself prays some things and doesn't receive them. Jesus prays for the cross to be taken out of his life, and he doesn't get that. So it isn't necessarily about just whether or not you get everything in the time that you ask for it, but it's about a deep heart trust that God can do the things that we just put on this list, and that we're supposed to be people who pray believing that it's going to happen. Man, nothing is needed more in 2020 than people who believe that God can change the world and pray for it as if it's gonna happen. And if you think about that and you think, I don't know that I can do that, you just think with me for a minute about the ditches that lie on either side of that way of life. We like to talk about two ditches at Mill City. Like if you go too far this way or you go too far that way. One ditch would be, I'm just not praying for anything anymore because I'm not sure that God's actually gonna give it to me. So forget it. The other ditch is, uh, I'm going to ignore all the times that anyone's ever said that God didn't answer their prayer and pretend like those things don't exist, because I don't know how to make sense of those things. Somewhere in the middle is responding to the call that Jesus is teaching these guys right here and saying, we're going to be people who believe that God can do miraculous things, that God can heal the world, that God can change the world, and we're going to pray as if he hears us and is going to do it, and we're going to expect those things to happen in 2020 and beyond, and then we're going to let God do what God does and acknowledge that sometimes we don't have the full picture. But we're not going to give up praying, and we're not going to pretend like there hasn't ever been an unanswered prayer before. That's the route I think we ought to take. This doesn't change the power of God or the importance of praying. It means that we become people who pray anyway, because the world needs that. So Jesus invites us to pray and ask God and trust that God can change the world in the ways that the world needs to be changed. Pause for a second here and just ask yourself, 
Uh, where do you feel like you are in this prayer relationship with God right now? Do you feel like you've fallen into one of these ditches that you've really given up praying because you're not sure that God hears anything you say? Or you're tired of asking for things that don't, you don't receive? Have you been in the ditch where you've just prayed and prayed and prayed and pretended like God never un, didn't answer certain prayers because it's hard to understand that? Have you been somebody who's been faithfully praying and waiting for God to act? God can address the brokenness in each of us, and God can address the brokenness in the world. We see that in these texts. Sometimes we wish God would act quicker. Sometimes we wish God would act in different ways. But it doesn't mean that God can't act. And Jesus invites us to pray as if he can the last thing I want to touch on here in verse 25 is that Jesus says, and when you stand praying and believing, if you have anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. One way Jesus invites us to be part of dealing with the brokenness in ourselves and in the world is to forgive people. Don't you think 2020 would be really different if we were looking for opportunities to forgive people rather than feeling wronged by everybody who says everything that we don't agree with. And somehow in this text, you get the sense that your own forgiveness from God depends upon you forgiving other people. Jesus seems to say that if you have anyone against anyone, stop praying and forgive that person either in your heart or actually go talk to them and let them know that you've forgiven them and then forgiveness from God can be unlocked in your life. I was trying to understand that experientially as I was thinking about this sermon. And the way that I think I've experienced it is when I don't forgive someone, think of a time when you haven't forgiven somebody and you know you haven't forgiven them. Oftentimes when I've been in that spot, the person who wronged me or that I'm upset with has long forgotten upset about. In fact, if you ask them in their daily life, there are not impacted at all by the thing that they did to me. But my life is much worse because I'm so bitter about it. I'm so angry about it. I'm still going through the effects of what it is that they did to me. And maybe we feel like forgiving them is letting them off the hook. But forgiving them is actually part of our own healing process, right? It doesn't justify what they did in any way, shape, or form, but it helps unlock the freedom of forgiveness in our own lives. And so if we're going to be people who believe that God can change the world, Jesus says, one first step as you're praying is to be a person who generously forgives. I haven't heard anybody say that one of the key strategies for changing the world in 2020 is radically forgiving all kinds of people. Jesus is saying, deal with the brokenness in your own life by forgiving others so that you can sense and feel and experience the forgiveness that God has for you. Let me invite the band to come back up. So as we think about believing that God can do big things through us in the world, we have to be reminded that if we haven't forgiven anyone, that we have to forgive them in order to unlock God's forgiveness in our lives. So just pause for, for 30 seconds and see if God brings up somebody in your life that you need to forgive, okay? Just a moment of silence.
as we look through Mark, the lens of Mark, the book of Mark, into our lives in 2020, we can hear Jesus calling us to have faith, to be people of faith, to be people who believe, to fight against cynicism and skepticism, not to be ignorant, but to believe as Christians, as followers of Jesus, that the way that the world is going to change is through the love and forgiveness and grace made possible in Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself is angry about any religious group, any religion that sets itself up against connecting with that God in 2020. Jesus is calling us to have faith, to pray as if things are going to happen, to forgive others, and to bear fruit, to be kingdom people that others can see are living differently in the midst of our current moment. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. You're an incredible leader and an incredible teacher. Thank you for showing us some of the things that make you mad. Thank you for challenging us to believe even when it's hard to believe. Thank you for sending us out as people who forgive and for offering us forgiveness too. We love you. Increase our faith. Increase our trust. Increase our hope that, God, you can change the things that need to be changed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.